Good morning to all of you. Let us open our Bibles to Acts chapter 28. This morning we will be thinking about verses 11 through 22. Acts 28, verses 11 through 22. We are leaving the island of Malta, and now we are headed for Rome. And so here's what happened next. Verse 11. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting it at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wing sprung up, and on the second day, we came to Puteoli. There we found brothers, and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome... Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let me give you some historical context as we begin this morning. In the year 49 AD, Roman Emperor Claudius, he commanded all the Jews living in Italy to leave due to riots that took place in their communities. Not much is known about those events, but we do know that many Jews actually left Italy, Rome included, and were dispersed. According to Acts chapter 18, verses 1 and 2, this is why Aquila and Priscilla had moved from Italy to Corinth when Paul went there during his first visit. Five years later, In 54 AD, things changed for the better, at least in part. On that year, Claudius died, Nero took power, and the anti-Jewish edict was revoked. Now the Jews could return to Rome. By then, Christianity had grown all throughout Italy, although we are not sure exactly how that happened. Some say Peter is the one who uh, originally took the gospel there, but that is somewhat speculative. 
All we know is that Christians were busy spreading the good news of Jesus all over the world. What does any of this history have to do with our passage? Much indeed. Think about this. For approximately five years, from the year 49 to 54 AD, Rome was seeing a community of Jesus' followers that would have been mostly Gentile because there were barely any Jews in Rome. So there was a problem lurking at Rome. A problem lurking at Rome. What was the problem? Severe division in the church. Severe division in the church. A mostly Gentile church in Rome could quickly become a Gentile exclusive church with no room for Jewish people. Potential here for severe, severe division. Knowing this potential for division in Rome, Paul thought of the solution. What was the solution? A letter to the Christians in Rome, which we know as Romans. So he wrote his letter to the Romans from Corinth toward the end of his third missionary journey in the year 57 AD, handed the letter to Phoebe, who lived in a town just west of Corinth called Sancrie, and he kept on going. This background would explain why the letter of Romans says so much about the relationship between who? Jews and Gentiles. Keep in mind that Paul wrote it only three years after the Jews were allowed to return to Rome. They returned in the year 54. He wrote it in the year 57. The wounds were still fresh in the Jewish mind. Feelings were still raw, and things between Jews and Gentiles could have taken a turn for the worse at any moment. On top of that, you have to add the little detail of learning to live together as one body between Jews and Gentiles after thousands of years of learning to live apart from each other. That's a small detail. Now, let's take a quick look at some of the content of the letter to the Romans then. This is going to help us. Since we're right next to it, why not? Paul spoke some glorious truths in this letter. For example, in chapter 8, I'm sorry, in chapter 1, verse 8, he says to the Christians living in Rome, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. And then look at verse 11 of the same chapter. He gets even more personal by telling them, I long to what? I long to see you. I long to see you. He wanted to go to Rome. And then in verse 15, he says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who live or who are in Rome. Then in some of the most penetrating words ever penned, Paul explains to them this gospel of which he's not ashamed and for which he has endured so much suffering and pain. And he's there, as he's there in Corinth, suffering, he offers the Romans some of the deepest thoughts about God and his love for us in Christ Jesus. And so we read, for example, in chapter 5, Verse 1, he tells the Romans that we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
But since this is not an excuse for sin, he also tells us in chapter 6, verse 12, not to let sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Something, says Paul, something has changed. You are no longer under the rule of sin. We have peace with God, but that also means we are at war with sin. But our confidence is in Jesus. So we read in chapter 8, verse 1 of Romans, this wonderful truth that there is therefore now no what? Condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This being the case, we must now walk by the Spirit, not by the flesh. We are new creations in Christ Jesus. And then in some of the weightiest chapters in all the scripture, namely chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul explains the impact that this gospel must have in how they relate to one another as Jews and Gentiles. Jews cannot exclude Gentiles, neither can Gentiles exclude Jews because they are not mutually exclusive, but mutually beneficial. So you find statements such as what you see in chapter 11, verse 11. In a mysterious way, the Jewish rejection of the Messiah means salvation for the Gentiles. But then you read statements such as the ones in verses 13 and 14 of of chapter 11. In a mysterious way, once again, Paul's ministry to the Gentiles is meant to make the Jews jealous. But not so that they might be excluded from Christ's body, but so that they might be saved. Jews and Gentiles, says Paul, are no longer enemies. They are rather blessings to each other in God's sovereign plan. And so we come to Romans 12, verse 1, which gives us some of the most shocking language. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Paul now says this to both Jews and Gentiles living in Rome. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, and you know this verse, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as what? As a living what? Sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What's so shocking about that? Well, he's talking about sacrifice. As far as I know, that's something you do where? In the temple, but he's now applying it within the context of their fellowship in Jesus. Apparently, the temple is no longer needed. In Christ and by the Spirit, we can now offer ourselves as sacrifices to God through faith. Something better than the temple is here, remember? This is new, but it is all rooted in the old Hebrew scriptures. And he's speaking to Jews and Gentiles. That's the shocking part. Paul is fighting for what? He's fighting for unity in the gospel. So welcome those who are weak in the faith and do not become a stumbling block to them. So here's the bottom line of Romans. Here's the bottom line of the letter to the Romans. Love is the fulfilling of the law. Love is the fulfilling of the law. Jesus himself became a servant of all, and he's the redeemer of both the circumcised, the Jew, 
and the uncircumcised, the Gentile. And so toward the end of the letter, in chapter 16, verse 17, Paul issues a, an urgent warning. An urgent warning having to do precisely with unity. What does he say in chapter 16, verse 17? He says this, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who do this one thing. What do they do? They cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. What do you do with them? Avoid them. Avoid them. What's the urgent warning? Avoid divisive people. Avoid divisive people. Since the gospel of Jesus creates unity in the spirit, anyone who seeks to divide Christ's body is anti-gospel. Beware, says Paul, stay away. To divide the church in any way is to oppose God himself and to oppose his Messiah. Why did, why did Paul oppose Peter to his face? Because Peter was seeking to divide Jew and Gentile. Peter's conduct, according to Galatians 2.14, was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Division is a denial of the gospel. Now, with all that context in mind, look at Acts chapter 28, verse 16. Wonderful passage. And when we came into Rome. Paul entered Rome in the year 60 AD. By then, the Christians in Rome had had how many years to ponder, to meditate upon the contents of the letter to the Romans? He sent it in the year 57. He entered Rome in the year 60. Three. I did the math right. I just wanted to confirm. Three years. Three years. The Christians at Rome, they had three years to meditate, to think, to ponder, and hopefully to apply the contents of his letter. Paul's journey from Malta to Rome then would have been full of anticipation and prayerful expectation. Paul's main question as he was making his way to Rome would have been this. Will I find the church in Rome walking in unity and love? Will I find the church in Rome walking in unity and love? In other words, did my letter, the one that I sent three years ago, have the desired effect? Are they all with one mind and one heart holding on to the hope of Israel? And what about the Jews? Will they hate me as the ones in Ephesus did? Or will they listen to what I have to say? Now, we don't get all the answers, but we do get some. And we first see an encouraging arrival, an encouraging arrival, having spent three months in Malta, displaying God's sovereign, synergistic, compassionate, and unified kingdom, they left for Rome. The trip is now fairly smooth all the way to Rome. Now, if you think of Italy and its uh, boot shape, uh, regium, which is mentioned in verse 13, 
is on the very tip of the toes, very tip of the toes. From there, they made it to Puteoli, Puteoli, and from that point on, they traveled by land. But let us stop in Puteoli for a moment. For some strange reason, Paul and his companions were allowed to stay there for an entire week. This is very unusual because Paul was a prisoner. Paul was a prisoner. This makes me think that it is possible some of the soldiers that were in charge of Paul's transfer to Rome had become Christians by now. I know I'm, I'm speculating a little bit, but why else would they allow Paul and his companions to spend an entire week at this city? Why allow them so much freedom? I think it is at least possible that having seen the life and ministry of Paul and having heard his message in Malta for three months, the Lord brought many of them to saving faith in Jesus. Whatever the case might be, Paul was encouraged first because in Puteoli they found what? According to verse 14, brothers. Brothers. Think about this. Italy already had the presence of the gospel by the time Paul entered it. Once again, even though we have a record of Paul's missionary trips, it is clear that he was not the only one staying busy spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christianity was spreading like wildfire. We're not told what they did for those seven days in Puteoli, but likely Paul used most of that time to further instruct the Christians in the gospel. It is possible that these Christians already had a copy of his letter to the Romans and were super excited to have the Apostle Paul walking among them. Imagine having Paul himself do some preaching from his own letter to the Romans. Now that's a conference you don't want to miss. So far this must have been greatly encouraging to Paul. However, we know his mind is set on Rome, the capital city of the empire, because he knows that the potential for challenges are greater there. So after seven days, they take off again. This time, the Bible says they stopped in two places that were in between Puteoli and Rome. The first one was the Forum of Appius, a place located 40 miles south of Rome, and then three taverns located 30 miles south of Rome. Why did they stop there? Very interesting reason. It says that the brothers from Rome itself, they heard about Paul's arrival, but they couldn't wait until he came to them in Rome. So instead, they went to meet him. So some of them traveled 40 miles and others traveled 30 miles to go meet the Apostle Paul. This reveals an incredible amount of excitement surrounding Paul and his ministry by this time. You just don't travel 30 miles or 40 miles for just anyone. You only do so for someone very, very important, such as a, a victorious general or an emperor returning from battle or someone you deeply appreciate. This would explain Paul's reaction at the end of verse 15. It says, Luke says, that on seeing them, meaning the brothers from Rome that came to see him, Paul did what? He thanked God and took courage. Paul knew, the second reason he was encouraged, Paul knew that the Christians in Rome loved him. 
He knew that the Christians in Rome loved him. Paul is now thinking, Lord, thank you for blessing the letter. Thank you for blessing the letter. The positive reception of Paul was evidence of a fruitful planting of the seed. God, number three, God had been at work in Rome for all those years. God had been at work in Rome for all those years. Brothers and sisters, let us not miss the first lesson we learn from this. Let us not miss the first lesson that we learn from this. Paul was encouraged because he saw himself as belonging to a worldwide body. Did you catch that? Paul was encouraged because he saw himself as belonging to a worldwide what? Body. Notice that Paul's encouragement or lack thereof he was human after all, was bound up tightly to the condition in which he found the brothers in Rome. Paul felt the temperature of the church body and it affected him either for encouragement or sorrow. And when the pinky finger was in pain, he felt it. And when the muscles were growing strong, he rejoiced. In Jesus and by the Spirit, Paul understood himself as belonging to one new man, as he says in Ephesians 2.15. Paul wanted both Jews and Gentiles to know that they were not amputated parts surviving alone, but that they belonged and that their strength was in their unity by the Spirit. Likewise, brothers and sisters, we are one body in Christ. Do we operate as such? Do we allow ourselves to mourn with those who mourn and to rejoice with those who rejoice? May this be true of our church. It is of the essence. So in verse 16, Paul came into Rome. Now I want you to put yourself in his shoes for a moment. I can only imagine what this moment was like for Paul. Mixed feelings probably. Remember that he grew up in Tarsus of Cilicia, a city that belonged to the Roman Empire. He was therefore a Roman citizen by birth. It is not hard to imagine what sort of feelings the thought of visiting Rome would have evoked in a young child or a young teenager. The capital city of the world, the heart of Rome's powerful empire. Even today, the name Rome sounds big. Paul had never been there. Verse 16 is an important point in Paul's life. But this is not because of Rome's glory, but because Paul is there on a mission greater even than Rome itself. But I will address that at the end. In verses 17 and 19, or 17 through 19, we see that after three days, Paul gathered the leaders of the Jewish synagogue in Rome. You remember that everywhere Paul went, he always looked for the synagogue first, the Jew first. In Rome, of course, he's under arrest, so instead of going to them, he calls them to himself. But in Rome, there is a, there is a specific reason why he does so. He wants to clear the air. He wants to clear the air with his Jewish countrymen. Think about it. Think about the historical context. A lot had happened to Paul prior to coming to Rome, several trials, plots against his life, 
Paul is naturally wondering at this point, have the Jews in Rome heard anything about this? Are they concerned that I'm here to cause trouble? Do they already hate me like the Jews in Ephesus? So Paul takes the initiative. In verse 17, he tells them that he has done nothing against the Jews or against the traditions of the patriarchs. And in verses 19 and 9, 18 and 19, he tells them that the Romans did not find any fault in him back in Caesarea, but that the Jews kept pressing for his death. So he was forced to appeal to Caesar. Therefore, he didn't come to Rome to get back at the Jews for all the hate they had shown him in Jerusalem and Caesarea. And from this, we learn the second lesson from the life of Paul, a second lesson. Paul was a peacemaker, not a what? Troublemaker. Paul was a peacemaker, not a troublemaker. He does not want to stand before Caesar to get the Jews in trouble. That's what he's saying. Why was it important to add that clarification? Well, this is the year 60 A.D., It's only been six years since the Jews were allowed to return to Rome, and they didn't want a Jewish troublemaker speaking badly before the emperor. So Paul wants to assure them that his intentions are not vengeful, but peaceful. He's not in Rome to cause any trouble. In fact, if you go to verse 20, Paul says, It is not because I have abandoned the Jewish hope that I am wearing this chain but precisely because I still hold to it. In other words, I didn't come to Rome to pick a fight. I'm here to proclaim a hope. I'm here to proclaim a hope. Thankfully, in verse 21, the Jews gave Paul good news, some relief. We have not heard anything bad about you, they said. All we know, they say in verse 22, is that you have something to do with a new sect the sect of the Nazarenes, and that everyone has heard about it and no one seems to like it. So as you might know, Christians developed a bad reputation in Rome very quickly. Why? Well, they were the ones who did not worship the gods or prayed to the gods like everyone else did. So if something bad happened in Rome, could it be the fault of the Christians for not worshiping and praying to the gods? A few centuries later, you might know, a similar charge was brought against Christians in Rome, which resulted in the production of one of the most influential books ever written, namely, The City of God, by none other than Augustine of Hippo. So here's Paul, a Jewish man, trying to ease the minds of his fellow Jews who are already suspicious of his association with this new sect called Christianity. They don't like that association. So they ask Paul about his views. In verse 22, you are a Jew, Paul, and we certainly don't want a Jewish man causing any more trouble for us in Rome. We have had enough of that already. Explain what this Christian sect is all about. We desire to hear from you. And they will hear from Paul, but we will dive into that next Sunday, as we bring our series to a close. For now, let's return to Paul's mission, as I said we would. 
He came to Rome not to fulfill a childhood dream. Neither did he come to admire the empire's greatness. He has come to the very heart of the most powerful kingdom on earth in which lived the most powerful king of earth to preach about a new kingdom with a new king. A king who has the rights not just to Rome, but to the entire world. The king was born in Bethlehem, but now, only a few decades later, his kingdom has reached Rome. But the way it came to Rome is not how you would expect a kingdom to arrive, is it? Which takes us to the central lesson that we learn from Paul. The central lesson that we learn from Paul. And you can, you can dive into this one by yourself later. Here it is. Because of his renewed mind. Because of his renewed mind. Paul could talk about chains and hope as not being mutually exclusive. Did you catch that from Paul? Because of his renewed mind, Paul could talk about chains and hope as not being mutually exclusive. You see that in verse 20. The chains that bind Paul are almost like a silly joke when compared to the unchained nature of the hope he proclaimed. But this is how God's kingdom operates in a way that is almost entirely counterintuitive. Think of Jesus. Think of Jesus. How was he born? He was born in utter humility with hardly anyone noticing, experiencing suffering from the very beginning of his earthly life as Herod sought to kill him. Yet he was the rightful heir to all of creation. Likewise, think about this, God's kingdom entered Rome through the proclamation and ministry of a prisoner of Rome wearing a chain. Yet, Paul was operating in the very power of the Spirit of God. What a picture this is. An ambassador of God's kingdom preaching inside of a lesser kingdom as a prisoner. All the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Let me ask you this. Have you ever tried to give counsel to the Lord? If I would have given counsel to the Lord, I would have suggested a little more pump for his kingdom. Just a little more. At least, Lord, choose someone other than a prisoner to be your main ambassador in Rome. If I would have given counsel to the Lord, I would have suggested to Paul in almost any context, or put Paul in almost any context except under arrest. But yet the wisdom of God is too deep for my painfully finite and small mind. 
Instead, this is what the Lord does. Check this out. The Lord, in the depths of his wisdom, took his emissary, Paul, put him through trials, plots, storms, shipwrecks, snake bites, and now under arrest, and gave him the charge to proclaim his kingdom. Go figure. Go figure. If I would have been Paul, I would have objected. I would have objected like Moses did. I would have said, Lord, are you sure? Are you positive? You want me to announce your kingdom while wearing chains under arrest. That doesn't convey a lot of power, Lord. That would have been my objection. Thankfully, Paul was not like me. He had a much, much greater understanding of the kingdom of God in Christ Jesus. And so instead of making silly suggestions like I would have, he teaches us that the chain which bound him proved one truth. The chain that bound him proved one truth. What is that truth? Christ's hope is unchained. Christ's hope is unchained. Paul has been facing challenge after challenge after challenge in every city. Opposition had been fierce up until this point, and now he's wearing chains, yet the gospel continues to flourish everywhere. But that's the blessed irony of the gospel hope, isn't it? That's the blessed irony of gospel hope. Jesus died on a cross, condemned as a criminal while wearing a crown of thorns. Can you imagine a more devastating picture to the naked eye? Can you imagine, can you envision a more devastating picture than a Jewish man dying on a cross, condemned as a criminal, wearing a crown of thorns in the Greco-Roman world, there was now no death more humiliating than a cross. And yet, through that humiliating death, Jesus was actually reconciling the world to God. Death could not chain the hope. It is through that very death that God forgives sin. It is through that very humiliating death that God secured an eternal hope. The powers of darkness had already tried to chain hope to death by killing Jesus, but instead, death became the very door into resurrection life. And that is the hope of Israel, by the way. What is the hope of Israel? Resurrection from the dead. To paraphrase Paul, Jesus was the first to rise from the dead. We who believe in him will follow him someday in a resurrection like his. Our bodies will be raised. That's the kingdom of God. Humiliating death gives way to glorious life. Shameful weakness gives way to spiritual power. That's the kingdom of God. It advances in the world, not through pompous men wearing expensive robes and wielding high political power. Instead, God's kingdom advances through weak men going through stormy seas, living through dangerous shipwrecks, experiencing snake bites, and wearing heavy chains. 
through it all, God accomplishes his kingdom purposes. God didn't let Saul defeat Goliath. Saul was too big, too big and too tall for the job. Instead, God used David with a sling and a stone. God chose to defeat the Midianites not with 20,000, nor with 10,000, but with a mere how many? 300 men. God's power is made perfect in what? Weakness, as he said to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Since God, think about this, since God desires all the glory for himself, he will do marvelous things through the most unlikely instruments, such as a young man with nothing but a stone, a prisoner wearing a heavy chain, or even a deacon being stoned to death. The hope cannot be chained. Neither can it be killed. In other words, what I'm trying to say to you is simply this. Given your hope in Jesus, given your hope in Jesus, don't let anything chain you. Given your hope in Jesus, don't let anything chain you. Whether fear, anxiety, immorality, discontentment, hopelessness, division, anger, bitterness, envy, resentment, or ungratefulness. Paul was chained in Rome, yet he was free in Christ. Your hope in Jesus is unchanged because he lives forevermore. Remember Galatians 5.1. You have it there in your notes. For freedom... For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Since this is your life now, Christian, in Christ Jesus, nothing can chain you down. Jesus has set you free indeed. Live, therefore, with love Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We are free in Christ. Let us live like it. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for once again giving us the gift of your word. And I ultimately rest not upon any abilities in myself which are so limited. But I ultimately rest in the power of your spirit to apply what we have heard deeply into our hearts. Help us to imitate Paul, who though he wore chains for most of his ministry, yet he was a free man, free in Christ. So Father, I pray that you will remind us of our freedom Help us to never again live as though we were slaves to sin. Thank you for the hope of Jesus that will forever remain unchanged. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.